Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 37. Last week, I covered a couple of the lesser-known people and places found in Judges 9, all around the story of Gideon's wayward son, Abimelech. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm wrapping up with three places mentioned in that chapter and then moving on. And with that, let's get started. First up is the Tower of Sheshkam. And while I covered that city in Volume 1 of the podcast, I never touched on the concept of fortified towers, which comes up twice in Judges 9. The Tower of Sheshkam merits a mention towards the end of the chapter when the lords of that city are now said to be the lords of its tower. There is a bit of confusion around the passage, and here both Beth Milo and Beth El Berith may not have been different geographic locations, but instead different parts of the same fortification. If they were part of the same complex, or even if they were further away, those two places were abandoned as Abimelech advanced towards the lords, with everyone gathering in the tower. When it was over, some 1,000 residents lay dead at the hands of Abimelech and his soldiers. Obviously, not much is known about this specific tower, other than the little found in the text. But there's a bit worth covering about fortified towers in general, especially those from this era. Obviously, towers have been used by mankind since prehistoric times. The oldest known may be the circular stone tower in the walls of the Stone Age Jericho, originally dating to around 8000 BC. To put that in context, when the Israelites crossed the Jordan and attacked Jericho, the tower then, or maybe the nth iteration of the tower, was already 7,000 years old. A greater length of time, in terms of historical distance, from when it was originally built to then, than it is from the day of the attack to today. Some of the earliest known towers were ziggurats, which existed in Sumerian architecture since around the 4th millennium BC, so still 2,000 years before the Israelites returned from the Exodus. Among the most well-known ziggurats was the Sumerian ziggurat of Ur, built in the 3rd millennium BC, along with Etumenoki, which was a ziggurat dedicated to Marduk, located in the ancient city of Babylon, and a well-known example of Babylonian architecture. It was constructed during the 2nd millennium BC. This tower, Etumenoki, is now considered the tallest tower of the ancient world. Note, though, it was much shorter than the pyramids, which are not officially considered towers, given their base-to-height ratio. How tall was Etumenoki? Well, that's the subject of an ongoing debate. Modern scholars dispute the claim made by the ancient Babylonian source, known as the Esagwala Tablet which claimed it was 300 feet, 91 meters tall. The basis for this dispute arises in architecture, with a specific technical issue. Essentially, the proposed height of the first two terraces, along with the total height of the building, 
defy the laws of statics and the compressive strength of a material such as raw earth brick. Essentially, the building materials available at the time could not have supported such a tall structure, even when allowing for variations in the design of a six-level terrace structure. At that height, the compression stress on the structure would be somewhere around two to three times as much as comparable structures of the same period. Instead, it's been proposed that if the ziggurat did indeed use a six-level terrace design, as depicted in the Tower of Babel Stele, the ziggurat was probably closer to 180 feet, 54 meters tall. The temple at the top contributed another 40 feet, 12 meters in height, for a total height of 215 feet, 66 meters. Still an impressive tower, but not quite as much. Outside of the Middle East region, there were towers in northern Scotland, which are described as conical tower houses. There were also examples from Phoenicia and Rome, which emphasized the use of a tower in fortification in overwatch roles. By way of example, the name of the Moroccan city of Mogadar, founded in the first millennium BC, is derived from the Phoenician word for watchtower. The later Romans tended to use octagonal towers, as seen in Diocletian's palace in Croatia, dating to around 300 BC. Backing up a bit, the Serbian Wall, an ancient Roman defensive barrier, with towers constructed around the city of Rome in the 4th century BC, along with the Aurelian walls of the 3rd century AD, were square in design. Nearly half a world away, in China, towers were integrated into their Great Wall, built in the 3rd century BC by the Qin Dynasty. Not to forget, but most medieval castles integrated towers into their defenses, and the reason for this should be clear. The high ground is an advantage, especially when using launched projectiles that would benefit from a gravity boost, whether arrows, spears, stones, or nearly any later projectile. As for the tower at Sheskom, it was likely stone, though considering fire was used to destroy it, or at least kill the occupants, it could have been wooden. Then again, a hot fire will crack stone and destroy the mortar holding the rock together. Moving along. The next place I'll visit is Zalman. This peak rises north of Sheskom, with Mount Gerizim to its south. Even though it's labeled as a mountain, it really isn't that tall, rising only about 1,400 feet, 427 meters, above the valley floor. This places it nearly 3,100 feet, almost 950 meters above sea level. Between Mount Zalman and Mount Gerizim is a pass that runs roughly east to west, and it's this pass that makes the two peaks rather important, with millennia of trade history plying the course. To the west of the pass is the city of Nablus, and eventually the Mediterranean. To the east is Sheskom. As a trader would leave Nablus, he would first ascend the slopes of Mount Ebel and an area of rich agriculture, including gardens and orchards. 
Eventually, the terrain would turn rockier. Think thistles and thorns. All of this eventually leading to the interior valley. It was in this region that, after a mentionable victory, Joshua built an altar of unhewn stones, then marked the stones. After this, he proclaimed the blessings and curses, essentially proclaiming the law. Afterwards, the question has arisen if the people, assembled on the two peaks, could have possibly heard the proclamations. And an answer has been proffered, that the particular formation of the sides of the valley at the narrowest part, and the acoustics, which have been tested throughout the subsequent centuries, leave no doubt as to at least the possibility. In the outside record, the mountain, really all of the peaks in the region, give whoever holds the high ground a particular advantage over whoever decides to attack. Given this, it shouldn't be surprising to know there's a massive fortress at the summit, and that's Mount Zalman. The last place in Judges 9 is Thebes. This was a city that refused to surrender to Abimelech. It's thought to have been in the territory allotted to the tribe of Ephraim. Before Abimelech attacked Thebes, he first defeated Sheshkam, then headed their way. And, like Sheshkam, Thebes also sported a tower, built of unmentioned materials, but likely stone. The tower at Thebes was also likely part of a fortress, where after the rest of the structure was breached, the surviving residents probably gathered, making their way to the highest tower levels. Like I've covered, as Abimelech stood near the base, a woman on the roof, or at least near the top, heaved a millstone, which met the target that was his head. Was. As he clung to life, he had his valet finish him off, a story that was not only covered in Judges, but also got a mention by Samuel in the second book bearing his name. The 4th century historian Eusebius proposed the location of Thebes as lying 13 Roman miles, 12 statute miles, 19 kilometers from Nablus, and on the road to Scythopolis. It was probably a decent-sized village in an agricultural area. Today, in this area are groves of olive trees. Precipitation is captured in cisterns of hollowed rock, enough rain to provide the city with plenty of water. According to Samaritan tradition, the tomb of the patriarch Asher is in the city. Note other traditions have his tomb elsewhere, but still in Canaan. Recall that Asher was one of Jacob turned Israel's sons, who lived before, during, and after the trek to Egypt to escape the drought in Canaan, and was eventually reunited with his brother Joseph. If he is truly buried in the city, the likely explanation is that after he died, and as part of the exodus, his remains were transported, like those of his more famous brother, back to the region from whence they came. But there's no mention of this in the text, which means it's extremely speculative. And that's it for Judges 9. Chapter 10 picks up with the historical narrative after Abimelech met the millstone and then soared. In a timeline that's implied as immediate, 
a new judge arose, Tola, from Issachar. He would judge Israel for 23 years, with nothing worthy of remark occurring during his reign. And I don't say that to minimize what he did. In my mind, having an unremarkable tenure is a good sign that you did your job well, especially when you are surrounded by your enemies while trying to guide a people with a tendency to stray. After he died, he was buried at Shamir, another place to cover. After Tola was Jair, said to be from Gilead, he would judge the people for 22 years. He did get a few more words than his predecessor, with the text noting he had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys who controlled 30 towns, all in Gilead. In my mind, though it doesn't say so in the text, but this may show that he didn't judge all of Israel, just those 30 some odd towns which could be found in a small region within the confines of the tribes of Gad and Reuben, along with the eastern portion of Manasseh. Regardless, he also had a seemingly peaceful tenure. Upon his death, he was buried in Gamon, another place to cover. When he died, the fortune of the Gileadites, or perhaps the Israelites as a whole, changed. According to the text, the Israelites again strayed, turning from God into the Canaanite Baals, but not just the Baals, also the Astartes, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, Moab, the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. It seems they really couldn't make up their minds or were hedging their collective bets. Whichever it was didn't matter, as they made God angry, who turned them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites. The punishment was certainly swift and probably severe, with the Israelites being crushed and oppressed that same year. They would remain under the control of foreign powers for the next 18 years. But not all of the Israelites, just those living to the east of the Jordan River, in what was said to be the land of the Amorites, more specifically in Gilead. Those Israelites west of the Jordan weren't completely off the hook. The Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Ephraim, and Benjamin during the nearly two decades. As has become the pattern, towards the end of this oppression, the Israelites cried out, saying, We have sinned against you because we have abandoned our God and have worshipped the Baals, in the plural. God answered, with what was becoming his standard, reminding the Israelites that he not only delivered them from Egypt, but also from the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites. And yet, in the face of this ever-growing list, they continue to abandon him for the various Canaanite deities. Then something new. Despite their cries, God told them he would deliver them no more. Instead, they should, quoting, Go and cry to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. The people answered, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, but deliver us this day. They then put away their foreign gods and worshipped the Lord. This led to God to no longer being able to bear to see Israel suffer. 
At this point, the Ammonites were called to arms and encamped in Gilead. Seeing this, the Israelites came together, encamping at Mizpah. The commanders of the people of Gilead, meaning a contingent of Israelites, said to themselves, Who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. The answer to that question will have to wait until next week. Join me then. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.